0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, Cobus, today we're going to talk about an issue that we haven't really addressed head-on, but we've touched on for a couple months now, and that's China's emerging presence in the Indian Ocean and particularly the impact on Africa and East Africa. And what's interesting about this topic, Cobus, is that a lot of the pieces of the different topics we've talked about are going to come together in our discussion today. Um, So let's give a a little bit of a background on, on the Indian Ocean. You know, for centuries, The Indian Ocean was a vital conduit in the British Empire, connecting colonies in South Asia with Africa as part of a vast imperial trading network. Today, the Indian Ocean once again stands as a vital piece in an emerging global trading empire this time China's. Beijing is developing a strategic trading agenda known as the Maritime Silk Road. And to do this, the Chinese are rapidly modernizing ports along Africa's east coast, in Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, and expanding its navy to potentially defend vast new strategic interests. While at the same time, Gobis, unnerving officials in New Delhi, Washington, London, all over the place, as uh, Beijing really does try to challenge the status quo and move it more in its favor. It's hard to overstate how important this is and how the stakes are extremely high. Most people don't appreciate just how much cargo traffic passes through the Indian Ocean and on its way round the Straits of Malacca and into the South China Sea. So let me give you a few statistics here. Each year, 100,000 ships traverse the Indian Ocean that connect the major oil ports in the Persian Gulf with the strategically vital South China Sea. Now, it's the South China Sea right now that we're seeing this very, very tense standoff between the United States, China, the Philippines, Vietnam, and a number of others. But the South China Sea, and few people outside the area realize this, the South China Sea is is the home to $5 trillion of trade that passes through that region annually. So it is just incredibly important. Now, think about this. China is the world's largest trading company now, much larger, in fact, than the United States in terms of the number of countries that it trades with. And most of its trade with Europe and the Middle East, and all of that oil coming out of the Persian Gulf into China passes through the Indian Ocean. The Chinese Navy is now the second largest in the world behind the United States, and now we are seeing, as in the South China Sea, it appears that Beijing is willing to challenge U.S. hegemony in the region and very likely will see maybe the Indian Ocean as the next Uh, kind of staging ground for this challenge. So what does this all mean for Africa? Well, we've invited two really uh, excellent guests to kind of talk about this. They've written an article called Silk, Cinnamon, and Cotton, Emerging Power Strategies for the Indian Ocean and the Implications for Africa. Elizabeth Sideropoulos, who's the chief executive at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, and Dr. Chris Alden, head of foreign policy program at SIA. Chris has been on our show before, so welcome to you both.
1: Thank Thank you. you.
0: Elizabeth, let's start with you actually very quickly just to kind of you know, get the, the big picture again as I've kind of laid it out and I took a lot of those facts from your excellent article. Uh, but let's kind of, in order to fully understand what's happening in the Indio- Indian Ocean, why this is so important, we first have to get our minds around kind of China's geostrategic vision surrounding the Maritime Silk Road because that seems to be the blueprint for what's driving all of this. What is the Maritime Silk Road and why is it so important?
2: I think the concept has, uh, has really, uh, fired up, uh, people's imagination because I think it's a very nice way of packaging, uh, the way in which China is, is, uh, is uh, engaging already economically and politically, not only across the Indian Ocean into Africa, but also across, uh, across Asia, uh, into, into Europe. And the Maritime Silk Road is very much linked up, uh, and was announced within one month of the announcement uh, by president xi jinping of the um, of the silk belt the terrestrial road uh, from china across central asia uh, into europe ending up in uh, in well all going all the way to, to to western europe and so it's it's really created a very uh, nice um, attractive vision of of how uh, the various components of of chinese economic and political engagement uh in in, in in three continents uh, can be linked together um, but it is in its uh, in its uh, articulation um, I think uh, very clearly now uh, sort of uh, identifying the Indian Ocean, uh, even though it's an ocean that China does not have a direct direct access to. As a, it is an ocean that is strategically important for, for China because of the uh, statistics that you yourself uh, mentioned right at the, at the beginning of, of, of the show and that it, you know, in many senses, is, is, uh, is an important strategic lifeline for, for Chinese trade and indeed for trade into the, uh, into the Pacific Ocean. Um, for Africa, um, of course, it is about Africa thinking a little bit more strategically, and this is also something that has begun over the last couple of years, about its maritime domain and the, the way in which uh, external actors are beginning uh, to take an, an increased interest, or new external actors, and what that means for, uh, for Africa.
3: Um, speaking about external actors, um, Chris, in the, the in the paper, you the it, it's very interesting how you compare China's expansion into the ocean with with um, competing plans coming from India and Indonesia. I wonder if you could lay those out for us as well.
1: Uh, sure. Um, uh, the the Indians and and the Indonesians, from slightly different slightly different angles on on the, a similar question. They see the the the, the economic potential. Of of increased trade with Africa in particular, but the Gulf also linked in with the Gulf and, and beyond, um, and and uh, and their approaches also have roots in a historical trading regime that Eric made reference to. The, for the Indonesians, it's it's a slightly bigger stretch. They see themselves as a kind of bridge or a uh, fulcrum between the um, uh, the Pacific Ocean and uh, uh, and uh, the Indian Ocean, and and there they 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 also. Uh, make claims to hist- uh, rooted in history of 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 uh, you know a presence on the African continent or parts of the continent, uh, to to justify a, a an expansion of of their maritime economic interests uh, in that part of the world where, where where they haven't been present for quite some time.
0: Elizabeth, you you let me just read back a quote, and this is the one of of all the paper. This is what stood out to me the most. And and Chris, I'd like to get your take on this as well. And you both of you write. Altogether, the Maritime Silk Road Initiative envisages a gradualist gradualist process whose ultimate aim is the reshaping of the political economy and geography of the developing world in Asia, Africa. That's a big deal. I mean, it's really, that's nothing short of kind of upsetting, again, the status quo and that seems to go to challenge a number of very well entrenched players, most notably the Indians in the Indian side of the Indian Ocean. Uh, already, we've seen you know Chinese submarines showing up in Sri Lanka as a challenge to Indian hegemony in that part of the world. Clearly, this is the Americans are, are high on the list for challenging their hegemony, both in the Indian Ocean, but also in key oil lanes in the Persian Gulf. So. Could you, let's start with you, Elizabeth, to defend that statement because it is really, if that's in fact what the Chinese are doing, that's a very, very big change in in the past 50 years of post-war stability.
2: Well, I think it's a reflection. Firstly, I think it's important to emphasise that this is this is not something that we're going to uh, see change overnight. It is it is about a gradualist approach, and it's also a function of the fact that, you know, in the last, particularly in the last decade, uh, China has changed both in the way it it is increasingly um, um, projecting itself in the world. It's no longer this sort of you know uh, keeping below the radar. I think it's become far more um, assertive in its in in it's the defence of its interests, and it's a it's a function also of of the fact that um, it is the second largest uh, economy. It is uh, uh, it is the largest uh, trading economy, as you as you mentioned right at the beginning, and and uh, many of its interests uh, lie beyond its immediate uh, geographic uh, geographic space, uh, and uh, are often in in highly volatile, potentially sensitive, and fragile uh, regions. And it's, it's understandable in that context that it would like to have a greater degree of control over the, the potential vulnerability. And you've mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier um uh, the gulf and 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 the middle east in africa itself where china has uh, has a number of of political and economic interests uh, resource in, resource interests um these are in, in in fairly volatile environments its involvement in the anti piracy um uh, uh convoys uh, off the off the horn of africa and and close to yemen are a reflection of 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 the need to uh to be uh to to take actions that allow it to minimise the risk that it sees, uh, both uh, both political and economic. In the process, of course, it is also um, challenging uh, the existing state of quo. And, and, and France also is out there in the Indian Ocean, and of course, in, and 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 the British Navy or the Royal Navy, um, um, and and that's very much a factor of the way in which um, it's. In the last, particularly, I would argue, in the last couple of years, and under Xi Jinping, I think even more so, uh, beginning to to be more um, um, more bolder, let's say, bolder in its in, in, in the way in which it, it seeks to, to control the space over which it uh, and to and to minimise the risks over the space in, uh, which which is just strategically important for it. Uh, Chris, and in that process, I, I? of course, it's yeah. Sorry. Y-
1: yeah. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, can I jump in and say, in a sense, this is, this is, uh, people have often com- uh, uh, observed, critics have observed that China has no grand strategy. But in fact, I'd say this is the mm-hmm. grand strategy. It's the one that conforms yep. or aligns with its position as a developing country, still developing country. And and uh, uh, it also reflects a, a, a geopolitical environment where we see the, the TPP being, Trans Pacific Partnership uh, uh, being set up. It's is a kind of, it's both an affirmative, constructive uh, reaction on the part of, of the Chinese state and also a, a um, uh, it, it's a defensive move, as it were, on that
0: basis. Yeah, I mean, you say about yeah. grand strategy. It's interesting. I just finished Ian Bremmer, who's the president of the Eurasia Group, mm. His uh, his new book. And he points out the same thing. He's echoing what you're saying, that it's really the, the the Maritime Silk Road and the One Belt, One Road are, in fact, China's grand strategy. Ironically, he accuses the Americans for not having a grand strategy. And hmm. in some ways, he contrasts this, that this is actually a very effective grand strategy. Uh, so in that in that point, Kobus, let me, let me kind of throw a question to you in terms of the perception in Africa. And, and again, you study media. This doesn't seem to be a topic that people really... Kind of understand very much about. As this starts to kind of make its way through the media, what do you think the reaction is going to be, particularly in South Africa?
3: You know, South Africa has always thought of itself as this
0: leader of Africa,
3: and it still frequently, you know, tries to market itself as the as the gateway to Africa. I think what what South Africa is is slowly going to be waking up to in the next while is that it is in this kind of gateway role. It's being supplanted by East Africa, um, and you know. So I think you know, it's it's all these developments are going to come through a double lens. One is, you know, obviously issues around Chinese involvement, Chinese control. You know, kind of how how much uh, influence China has. In Africa, and on the second, in the second place, um, you know, kind of whether whether east, whether the the kind of the the center of economic development is is moving towards East Africa from South Africa, and I think those are two related but but complicatedly different issues um and i think a hinge in this in this whole debate will probably be mozambique um you know just from my from my perspective mozambique has just discovered gas um, natural gas it is sits on the cusp between southern africa and east africa and it'll be very interesting to see you know kind of in in um in its growing economic role, you know, kind of which way the, its its influence is going to go, um, Chris, I don't know if you agree. Like in in, in in you know, kind of an extension to Kenya, which other African states do you see emerging? You know, kind of in in this kind of new power environment.
1: I think Tanzania r- remains a, a close and traditional ally. They they share some of the the offshore natural gas, just at the the, the northern tip of that themselves they've they have a very they've had a historically close relationship with china so i think there's a great there's a great investment there's an existing investment that that is reflected in contemporary investment so i think T- tanzania has that possibility um i think that um you know looking at uh, an ethiopia as well actually further to the north there's a lot of uh, attention being given to these um... uh... Plans to 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 promote industrialization, Chinese-led industrialization in in Ethiopia, the large market, the infrastructure, and of course the various uh, businesses, uh, um, SEZs that have been set up that are designed to 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 transfer. It's it it looks like it could be a a a model for um, uh, China's. transfer of of low cost industry uh, shifting assembly and that sort of thing to an ethiopia at least that's the way scholarship and some of the development practitioners are starting to talk
0: you know, Elizabeth, uh, Chris talked about, you know, a Chinese grand strategy, and, and that got me thinking a little bit about all the infrastructure building that's been going on, on in East Africa, particularly in the port sector. And I've always thought of those as bilateral deals between China and the particular country. So what we're talking about, I mean, the list of ports being redone in Djibouti, in Tanzania, in Uganda, even in Kenya, uh, and then we have the, the the standard gauge railway in Kenya, are those have I been misreading this over the, over the years and maybe those aren't actually bilateral deals but part of this bigger grand strategy that Beijing may have to link them all up as part of this maritime Silk Road or is that going too far no
2: I think um, I think it was the sort of the the point I tried to make right at the beginning, which is about sort of tying all the, um, the bits and pieces and roads and rails and, and ports together and I wouldn't be surprised if, if that maritime uh, Silk Road uh, strategy um, might be about ending up in, in the port of Piraeus or the port of Venice uh, as some maps would indicate, or going all the way to Rotterdam, but it would I would also see it potentially over the longer uh, term coming around the Cape uh, and, and also being about the way in which you link up the Indian with the Atlantic uh, over land and and indeed over over sea I think it is it is a bilateral uh, strategy but I suppose any anyone will probably uh, tell you that uh, a, a good bilateral strategy that is part of a much broader, Uh, A vision that uh, sees various aspects of the jigsaw puzzle coming together is probably the most effective bilateral strategy and so this, you know, these kinds of of, of investments which also have a regional nature to them uh, very much fit into uh, the ability to to, uh, from an economic perspective uh, uh, particularly from an economic perspective to make inroads uh, across across a continent where there are still many opportunities it's still not a a saturated uh, continent uh, from a commercial perspective and the way in which that can potentially link uh, across to, to the other side of, of, of the ocean and, and what that then creates for China's linkages with um, opportunities that creates also with Chinese linkages to, to Latin America.
0: But doesn't that really... That's, f- that's a really grand strategy. No, but doesn't that feed into the whole kind of conspiracy theory that says that China really is the neo-colonial imperial power? Because if that's in fact the case that this is all really connected together. It's hard to believe because again, let's not overstate Chinese I mean Chinese competence here. I mean, this is the keystone cops in a lot of ways when it comes to development. This is a very large entity that is not always as coordinated and I think people give it too much mm-hmm. credit oftentimes for being more centralized than it really is. But I mean, they seem to be replicating some of the infrastructure port to or mine to port type of infrastructure that the british and the former colonial powers did so doesn't this grand strategy give it credence to that
2: yeah, well, I, I think, I think there, are, there are a couple of points and here we mustn't forget about Africa, African agency or sometimes lack of African agency and that is that uh, at many levels uh, these kinds of, of, of interventions and investments by China make a lot of sense uh, from, uh, uh, from its perspective but it's also the extent to which and so while I'm sort of going on about you know it could end up in the Atlantic uh, I think certainly geographically one, one can see that uh, and if you're in in a position to link up the one side of of, of uh, um, the the eastern coastline of, of of Africa across across its middle with the western side, um, I mean the the op- the the potential there is is is, is quite clear. Um, from uh, in terms of the, the neocolonial uh, uh point that, that you raise, I think that is that is definitely a factor uh in, in the relationship. But my argument is also the extent to which uh African states uh and African regional organizations are able to uh, convert the interest not only of the Chinese but of other actors into into something that actually creates uh, viable economies as opposed to uh, replicating the, the old colonial patterns of, of, of extraction. That is certainly a debate and a discussion that's happening at the, at the African Union, it's happening at individual country level, it's certainly happening uh, in South Africa in the discussions around the need for countries like China and so on uh, to become much more involved in helping to beneficiate, to add value to, to products and so on, and to also help with with industrialisation or manufacturing in other sectors. So, for example, China um, is, is is working with South Africa in building locomotives. Um, so, that's about the extent to which African actors are able and I think where they are competent they actually can uh, can engage uh, China on these matters to, uh, on these issues to, to ensure that it is not just about that kind of thing and so if you, if you need roads to, to lead from a mine to a port, what do you do in between? Uh, and that is that is increasingly a, a discussion that uh, some countries are more capable and, and, and probably more influential in bringing to to the table with the Chinese and others are not. That is always, uh, a, 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 that must be a cautionary tale for, for Africans in the way in which they engage China and must be uh, something that, and I, I, and I think that, that is happening in some quarters, that it's not about, oh, well, China is our saviour. Uh, I think China uh, will, you know, is in there for what it, what it sees as its uh, particular strategic interests and uh, commercial advantage, and that's fine. Uh, ultimately, that's what, what uh, countries do for the most part. Um, it is how we respond to that that I think makes the difference between whether we are simply replicating near-colonial relations or doing something or taking advantage of their interest uh, by creating uh, foundations that allow our economies to, uh, to develop into the areas that we've identified.
3: So I wonder if we could, you know, one of one of the striking points that you that the two of you make in your article is that the the um, this kind of road and belt system is also supposed to facilitate the flow of of. Of people, um, you know, kind of, it's it's an explicit goal that that uh, you know, kind of, it's supposed to make it easier for personnel um, and and tourists and so on to 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 move to these different areas. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, about the role of of individuals and diasporas um, in, in 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 setting up the system. Um, you know, kind of, uh, especially where it comes to to kind of coastal areas and islands like places like Mauritius and Réunion and and the the east coast of Africa. Um, how do you see the different players, including India and China? How, how do the the different diasporas feed into to their um, to, to the kind of game they're playing in the East Indian Ocean?
1: Yeah, if I can uh, respond to that, I think that diasporas are part of the uh, are part of the the, the, the imagination of beyond the trade dimensions, economic dimensions, of where are places that China and, and India have a, a relationship with. It's a kind of the, the zone of the familiar, if you like. And that it's not to say that diasporas are, are being mobilized or what have you, but they, they represent um, uh, communities that have a, of, 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 have a link, however tenuous at this late stage, uh, with a historical link with with the, the various motherlands, and I think even even the Indonesians will, will make uh, ministers have made claims. Of, attended meetings where they uh, public meetings where they would argue that Mauricio, that uh, more uh, Madagascar rather is um, you know partly settled by Indonesians, and they that, that, that kind of link seems to be a a crucial way of uh, suggesting. There's a, a logic and a, uh, and a uh, uh, it, it fits within the ambit of what constitutes legitimate sets of interests on, on the part of the state, the Chinese state or the mother state or the Indian or Indonesian.
0: Okay. Well, Dr. Chris Alden is the head of foreign policy program at SIA, the South African Institute of International Affairs. And together with Elizabeth Sideropoulos, the chief executive at SIA, they wrote a fascinating paper, Silk, Cinnamon, and Cotton, Emerging Power Strategies for the Indian Ocean and the Implications for Africa. You can go ahead and find that uh, that paper over on the SAIA website at saia.org. Dot .za Once again, that's S-A-I-I-A dot O-R-G dot Z-A. I also highly recommend that you follow Saya on Twitter because in addition to China-Africa research, uh, you know, Elizabeth, your team is, is cranking out just wonderful reports. We've had Ushan on, on our show in the past, and it's just a great resource for all things Africa and the world, and particularly South Africa. So thank you both for joining us on the show thank today.
1: You. Thank, thank you. you.
0: And Kobus, if people want to stay in touch with what you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to kind of uh, follow you what you're reading and writing?
3: You'll see me on our Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where we aggregate China Africa news every day. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesq, that's
0: S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And that Facebook page, we're updating it literally 24 hours a day. Kobus over in Africa, I'm over here in Asia. Uh, It is just the best way to kind of check in to see what's going on in China Africa news. Uh, You can kind of join some of the discussions. But let's say that's not what you want to do and that's a little too hardcore. We've got an email newsletter that we send out every every Monday where we pick four or five of the top stories plus a podcast and a lot of SIA uh, academic reports that we put out from different institutions and whatnot. So uh, you can sign up for our newsletter on at uh, ChinaAfricaProject.com over on our website. Uh, again, every Monday we send that out. Cobus, is, uh, and Cobus and I, we alternate weeks, so you'll get a different vibe each week with, uh, when, we, when we put that together. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.